Welcome back to another episode of On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, the University of Houston cross-country coach, um, deputy director of High Performance West, joined by my good friend John Marcus, director of High Performance West, and by our repeat guest, our host of the most downloaded episode ever on this podcast, and the newly crowned national champion, Mike Smith of NAU. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me on again, Steve. Thanks, John. Our pleasure, Mike. Thanks for keeping your promise and coming back post-NCAs to unpack and discuss the remainder of the season last time we talked about a month ago. Lots changed. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a crazy last couple of days uh, since the race on Saturday, so it's good to kind of sit down and uh, put some thoughts together on it. So looking forward to this conversation. So yeah, let's put a let's. I like retrograde thinking, so we'll start at the end. Let's start, you know, t- this day today, you know, three days out from winning the NCAA title as a team and cross. Where are you guys collectively as a team? Is your mindset, hey, taking a break, or are you guys already, hey, today's day one for the 2018 run? How have you positioned this for um, the men as you guys get, look to defend back-to-back national titles here for the next season? Yeah, they're they're uh, they're on a much deserved break, um, taking some downtime and um, yeah, relaxing a bit. They they've got uh, just I think when you're trying to do a big you know something big as a team, there's a big emotional come down um, that I think they don't realize exactly the line they've been riding as a group for all these months until maybe it's done, and so. Um, there is a lot of exhaustion, happy exhaustion, but a lot of exhaustion at the end of it. So on a much needed rest right now, we'll, we'll regroup, uh, you know, we'll regroup in the coming weeks. Well, let's talk a little bit about your own personal, you know, energy levels. I know it's, as people say, the last day of cross country is the first day of track Uh (laughs) as a, you know, director of a, of prestigious program like NAU, you know, where, where are you at? How do you collectively, um, recoup after such a, you know, uh, successful run in the fall as you guys look to, you know, have the Jacks competing here indoors and outdoors on the track? Yeah, I think that's something I did uh, a good job of this fall was um, making sure that I was taking good care of myself um, and uh, trying to get the rest that I could and um, having times when I was you know, unavailable or kind of checking out a little bit just to make sure I was really in tune when um, I needed to be. And um, I- I'll use the same here coming to- coming off this season. I- I'm really short on sleep, uh, and I think I just need to recharge a bit. So I'm going to visit some friends, uh, uh, get some time on the beach, and um, yeah, and then get back to Flagstaff. Flagstaff itself is just a great place to to recharge in general, if you can, if you can get out of the office, so um, do some things locally. Um, be ready to be ready to regroup and go back at it. And well deserved. So um, appreciate. Take us through your oral recount of the NSA championships. Just you know, as now you have a little space and a little time to decompress and let the emotions settle. You know, going into that championship 40 hours before the race, during the race, and immediately after. Kind of take, walk us through as best you can, or as you recall, 
your interpretation of events and when it kind of actually sunk in that, you know, you and this band of brothers um, at NAU did what is very difficult to do, repeat and defeat a very competitive, very fit, very able um, group of teams and individuals to repeat right. as champions. Yeah, I, um, it was an interesting time. It, you know, I, I don't know if, if I'm biased or I just remember it wrong, but I, I don't remember such analysis of two teams um, in the other team being BYU. Portland ended up second with a great run. Um, kudos to those guys, by the way. Just just fantastic uh, coaching and, and uh, just a great season there. Uh, but, yeah, going into this thing, all this BYU-NAU stuff, and um, it was funny because just in our camp, our guys, I didn't re- really ever hear them talking about BYU. And I would – read all this stuff about BYU and NAU. And then I'd hear the, the guys would show me whatever social media from BYU uh, talking all about NAU. And I was like, maybe we're about to get, you know, so maybe there's something I don't know, but the, people seem super focused on, uh, you know, all this analysis between these two teams. And hmm. it just was so much, it was so much talk, so much like these scenarios that one of the BYU coaches had this like, like blog thing report about his predictions. And it just was really weird to me. And, uh, I just remember that we, we just, I was really proud of our guys just staying out of that stuff. We just didn't, they just, they just didn't, didn't really participate in that. And I was, uh, and I I think we just came really, really focused on what it would take to win, not who was going to win. And, so what, uh, so yeah, unpack that a little bit. How do what did you guys fo- elect to focus on? Since you weren't listening to all the buzz and chatter and pundits, yeah, yeah. In your camp, you know, leading into the spaces in the quiet spaces, right? On the flight, at the sure. hotel, van rides. Like, what were you guys really intent on? So I think a lot of it's just like knowing your group, and and I know our guys are. You know, we we got really dependable guys. I mean, I I think our we we talk a lot about if you can't be great be good right and so I, our range of outcomes I thought was pretty controlled we were running a freshman that um, had not run 10k there was a little bit of a variable there Corey Glines was kind of coming on but for the most part I mean we're showing up to that meet feeling pretty confident that the range of outcomes was from here to here it was a pretty contained range of outcomes like when you're you know Tyler and Matt I mean I knew what they were going to do um, those other guys are are really solid in there. And so I think when you, when you work on that ahead of time, it allows you to arrive to the meet, um, with a lot less unknown. And so we show up pretty relaxed and then the whole key is keeping them relaxed. And, um, like in our group, if, if, if there's a lot of laughing and joking and, um, and they're kind of loud, I know we're, we're good. And so what you're listening for is the silence. What you're listening for is, um, you know, them to, get tense and my job is we talked about this i think the last podcast we did but just balancing that that energy johnny called it the dance uh mm-hmm. yep. just sort of paying attention to where that energy is and uh making sure we're keeping it in the right place and so you know our, our travel and stuff um i felt like things were really really good and they were exactly how i would want them to be uh pre-race they you know we were they were they, they were 
pretty loose and pretty relaxed. So, so that um, that was the first checkpoint for us. You know, forty eight hours out, twenty four hours out, we went and played a game. Uh, day two days day before day before I think yeah, and uh, again really loose there. And all that's time that we're ne- not talking about the race, not thinking about the race. Um, and so I think again that allows you to to perform in that in that state of flow. So. Leading up to it, if you're not doing much talking about the race and all that stuff, at what point did you maybe distill what needed to be done? Like, was that weeks out, months out? Like, this is the expectations. Is there any talk of strategy, anything like that um, leading into it? Yeah, I, uh, I talk about, like, how you learn as a coach. So at, at Georgetown, I used to do these, like, um, big team meetings the night before the race and they, they could be like 45 minutes long and I'm talking all about all these different, you know, whatever, you know, the, all the different elements of the race. Um, I stopped doing that a couple years ago and um, try to make sure that we, we gave those directions um, far out because the athletes need to create a picture in their mind and be, uh, and be settled with that and not have a lot of unknown. And so we're actually – it's better to give them paint a really clear scenario of what, what we're looking at um, as far out as we can. So in the airport coming off the mountain regional race, so we're eight days out from nationals. We kind of, I huddled them up and I said, um, here's how we're going to run the race at nationals. Uh, this is what we're going to do. And it wasn't a very long conversation. I, I gave them, um, I, we had been analyzing, our, our, my coaching staff had been analyzing the 2012 Louisville race, the 2015 Louisville. We picked apart those results. We watched a lot of video. We had mm. been to Louisville twice. Uh, I had video a lot of pieces of the course. I, I, we had done our work. So it's not to say that, oh, the, the only work of coming up with this plan is the five-minute conversation. We were doing that for months and months and months, coming up with how to do this. And but when we when we issue the directives, that's a pretty quick conversation. So that was eight days out. Um, we we said that we were going to basically move in, into two groups and gave them their assignments, and um, so they had that. And then by, by the time we get to the race, uh, we don't really have to go over that much. I have some individual conversations about: Are you clear on what we're asking you to do? Yes, and then we're good to go. Mike, have you read the um, the book? The Education of a Coach about Bill Belichick. No, I haven't. No, okay, I that's have. a great book because what you just said reminded me a lot of Bill Belichick where okay. there was a lot of film, there was a lot of you know study and, anal- and you know analysis on the coach's part before you gave a very clear, concise, simple game plan. And I think sometimes if you're ill-prepared – um, you know, with what you want to do as maybe you were in a younger uh, incarnation of yourself at Georgetown, you try to create this train of thought on the fly. And we know that on the fly just doesn't work. So kudos to you for that evolution, but you just remind me a lot of Bill Belichick, lots of film, lots of nuance, lots of detail, very, very clear imagery on your part. And then you're able to communicate that to your charge, what it looks like, you know, to great effect and impact. Yeah. And I, I, we, we, I plan out, I mean, you know, if you plan out what you're going to say, three minutes of talking is a long time. I mean, if you're really simple and really concise, I mean, five minutes of talking is a lot of talking. And it's when it's not planned out uh, that you go on and on and, and you have the chance to maybe miscommunicate or get mixed messages and things like that. And so 
Um, I, I've been planning out a lot more of my words and just uh, trying to be as simple and concise as possible. Well, when we, so, pla- we plan out also, we tend to ramble, right? And then you don't know what the athletes are going to pick up because a lot of times you go through four or five different messages and they might pick up on one and, you know, ignore the others or pick up on something you didn't intend to. And I think like that message there for coaches is a huge take home. It's like know exactly what you're trying to get across first and then plan around that because athletes, you know, leading athletes sitting there in the night before the race or whenever it is, um, can misconstrue things easily. So speaking of clarity and brevity, unpack, if you will, gas. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, that's been something that's been around for a little while. They, um, that wasn't just for this race. I, okay. um, a couple of years ago, I was really trying to find the words for, uh, you, you know, you know, when you all are coaching someone and you're, and you're trying to verbalize relaxing, Right, the lack of tension, so actual tangible what relaxing is in the body, without having without correlating that with decelerating. Right, you can mm-hmm. imagine it. Right, so you're like relax, relax, and then next time they come around the track in the workout, you're like, oh nope, that's a slow split. Right, so right. how can we re- relax without decelerating? And so I, I was trying to uh, find verbiage for that, and uh, in that I, I kind of came to using. Uh, these labels of gas uh, on the gas and off the gas. And uh, I guess uh, when we're coming off the gas, uh, that's what I would call deceleration. Right. And so trying to actually find words to talk to athletes about how to stay on the gas, uh, mm-hmm. stay to, to kind of push that threshold. Steve Jones talks about it. Steve Jones is big on uh when he was racing, like in the '80s, you know, they didn't have uh, GPS and 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 all that, and so he talks about how he would just learn what it was like to just sort of ride this line, like ride this razor's edge of his threshold, and um, and to just stay on the gas. These guys are so aerobically strong that if they technically if they decelerate, they come off the gas. It's really easy to turn something into a into a tempo run, right. and uh, and and you know. We, uh, so when I'm telling them gas, they know what that means. They know that what it means is don't settle in. It means just stay, um, keep applying pressure, keep applying pressure. And so through that language of working with me as a coach, they know what I mean by that. We're just kind of using common vocabulary, but it's kind of a, a a ridiculous thing to just say to the athletes, just stay on the gas. It just sounds like suicidal. So there's like, (laughs) but I like it because it means keep applying the pressure. You're tired. Apply the pressure. You right. know, if if it's hard, apply the pressure. If there's a gap, apply the pressure. If right. you have a gap, keep applying the pressure because that's what racing is about. And so often we give in to the gremlins or the athlete gives into the gremlins like, oh, it's hard, it's windy, it's muddy. Uh, you know, I'll make up the gap in, a, in like five, ten steps yeah, or I'll yeah. make up the gap in the next mile like on that hill. But you and I and Steve, we all know that that's a suicidal thought even though – it's um, you know a thought that is supposed to be more like relaxing and encouraging to an athlete it ends up they backslide into the sloppy thought that then you know totally. re- results in an outcome that is not aligned with what they intended to do race that right yeah so um, it, it, it's we joke a lot and so I you know I I, I would tell especially when you're tra- when you, you know a lot of times in the season you got athletes that aren't sharp necessarily don't have a lot of gears and so how they have to race is you know it's like you know, they're going to have to run pretty evenly throughout a race. And so, 
Um, you know, they want all these crazy, intricate race plans. We talked about that before, and it's like, what's the race plan? The race plan is one word, gas. And uh, and then we, we talk a lot about empowering them, what to, you know, make sure they know what to do inside the race. Um, and so I would tell them, hey, when whenever you're unsure, what's the answer? Gas. And so we... They're used to my language there. And uh, for the two guys in the front, that was their we, – we, that was – we knew they were – we had been training them for that all season. We had been planning for that kind of attack all year. We sent them out in September at Louisville uh, specifically to practice for this. So two months before that race, we were practicing what we were going to do in that race. We sent them out in 431 or whatever it was. Um, and – we sent them out in our conference meet that we use that conference meet as a pre- preparation specifically for Louisville, sending them out like that. And then the last thing we did, I think maybe three weeks before the race, I, I was just, I thought that thing was going to go out in 4.30 and I was like, I need to have them touch something faster than that. And so we took them down to Sedona and we did a, a workout where we had a bunch of intervals, but we had them, we had them in the, I don't know, four 4.20 range. Uh, for a couple miles, uh, you know, at 4,000 feet. And so that was the last bit of callousing that I thought they were ready, ready to do that. And so we, we knew they could apply pressure. And, it, and it's a safe plan because even if they came off that pace, they were, those guys were going to get seventh or ninth. They, they weren't going to get, you know, 150th. So we knew that it was really safe what they were doing. So take us through the improvisation of dealing with the wind in Louisville. I know no one really maybe plan for such so you get there you're like man it's gonna be windy yeah thunderstorms coming so that improv and how you communicate to you know your team and staying aligned with your race plan and your strategy and not letting that be a limiting factor to what you guys wanted to execute during the race yeah so uh, you know we were we pay attention to the weather, uh, you know. Starting two weeks out, it's funny when you're picking apart a forecast, and I was like, "This is twelve <laughs> days away." And you're like going crazy about it, like you feel pretty ridiculous. But uh, it was amazing. That storm cell was kind of coming right. You know, it was like Friday was supposed to be nice, Sunday was supposed to be nice, man. Saturday was, you know, it, at one point they're saying like forty mile an hour gusts of wind. You know, it just was. It was the wind was the real issue. The temperature was actually, the temperature was actually great, and I think the temperature. Uh, may have been, you know, could have been either, you know, too hot, too cold, could have been more of a detriment, but the wind, uh, the temperature was actually fine. The wind, given our, we knew that we were going to uh, send two guys uh, to take the pace. Um, I just told those guys, hey, look, this is, you know, going to be even harder for what you're going to do, but the rewards might be even greater because to beat us as a team, I mean, I, I was pretty confident we are going to have two guys score in the top 10. And to beat us as a team, you cannot miss the break. If there's a break in that pack, just because with wind like that, how? What do you? I mean, how are you going to bridge that gap? I mean, Grant Fisher can maybe bridge that gap. Uh, maybe a couple people in that field can do that. Not many. And so we knew that if we could get a jump on them early, and you missed the the bus leaving the station, it was going to be really, really hard. Um, and I told you, if those guys die off, they're not they're not dying off that much. The margin of error is pretty small. So um, I thought the rewards could be great if we applied the strategy correctly. And it happened pretty early. I mean, about 2K in, uh, we we saw about 10, 12 athletes, but there, were no, there was no one from BYU in that group. And so, again, 
you know, it, just doing the math and team scores, that's a fatal flaw pretty early when it comes to team strategy. And so I let those guys know, hey, there's a gap, there's a break, uh, there's no one from BYU in this group. The only thing you can do wrong now is slow it down and bring people back in it. If, mm-hmm. if, you, uh, if you stay on it, there's no way they're, they're going to catch you guys. And so they uh, <laughs> they ran their, that, that middle 4K in the middle of that. I mean, I would love to see a split on that, but they – they ran that hard knowing that, uh, you know, they were going to get away and, and it ended up working out. So that, that brings up a good point here is when you're coaching in the middle of it, what right. kind of, what kind of cues, what are you, what are you giving your, your athletes? Yeah, I, um, I would say in track and field, uh, or cross country, I, you better not plan on relying on a lot of verbal cues because uh, you know it doesn't take uh, doesn't take long until you get to a big enough venue where they can't hear you, they can't see you, you know, and all those things. So um, cross country is an absolutely like like it's an absolute uh, chaotic wild west type of event where people are sprinting and running, and uh, you, you know you can actually say some things to them. Um, I, I like to think that we had prepared them well enough ahead of time that they knew what to do. The only problem is they can't see, you know, necessarily what's going on behind them. And so my verbal cues to them inside there were letting them know what's going on behind them. And we had talked enough about uh, Matt and Tyler knew that if there was a break, uh, that was going to be part of our plan to apply pressure. I think at that moment, I just let them know uh, that, we had had a uh, ten or twelve athletes had gotten away a little bit, and uh, there was no one that covered that that move. And if they stayed on it, we're good. And later on in the race, I think I maybe used some other choice words, adjectives uh, <laughs> to get their attention. Uh, but yeah, I, I just let them know basically if they if they stayed on it, we were we were okay. But you, there's not a whole lot you can say. Yeah. Let, let's zoom back out a little bit. We've talked a little bit about in the race, um, but several times here you've mentioned like riding the line, whether that's in the race or also in the season. And I wanted to hear maybe how you managed to ride that line for so many months uh, with big competitions that you guys raced, obviously conference regionals, all that stuff. But how do you keep guys from, you know, going a touch over? Right, because you see that at yeah. nationals all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's always keeping a handle on the the knob that is your physical intensity, and then the knob that is your um, mental, emotional, and being really, really careful when we're turning those knobs. And um, you know, I look back at the the, the the training in the summer, and it's. You know, it's highly aerobic. Most of them are at altitude. It's, 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 you know, a lot of volume. Um, they're running a lot, but there's no, there's no, there's nothing in there that is, um, from an intensity standpoint, that's asking a whole lot. And then when you look at the season plan from August till November, man, there's outside of the races, there's like maybe two, three, four times throughout three months where, they're having to really emotionally go to a pretty challenging place in training. Um, and 
I don't know. I, I just like I think I said this last time, you guys. I just think that's a mistake that we're leaving. We're using a lot of that ammunition in training because we're making stuff too hard for them. And so, and physically, yes, they can do it. But if if emotionally that well is is tapped, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it doesn't matter if they can do it physically. And so, you know, we we manage to have them healthy and, and really well prepared, but that emotional well was not tapped and they, uh, they got up for Wisconsin and, you know, um, a couple workouts maybe, but really they, they were not, they were still had a lot, a lot of place to go from an emotional standpoint by the time we get to NCAAs. Yeah. I think you're onto something, Mike, because recently that's been a running theme for my coaching practices with everybody reminding them, look, I want your emotional gas tank at full on race day, not two thirds, not a quarter tank, like full. And if that means you have to compromise some difficult training sessions to ensure that that emotional gas tank is very high, then so be it. And, you know, because it's a soft thing, this quote unquote emotional gas tank, you know, we as coaches have a lot of hard time putting numbers or confidence in it because, you know, it's not, we can't track it on a watch or a monitor of some sorts. We don't have any stern analytics. And I think that is a disservice overall to people we work with because that's what performance is. There is a key emotional element to every competitor and championship competitor that I've ever been around or had access to. I was having coffee with Alan Webb this weekend and we were reminiscing about, you know, his, um, his racing career a little bit. And that's one thing we hit on. He's an emotional guy. And it's a, you know, one of those emotions where it can either warm the house or burn it down. But when right. it was warming the house, you'd see it in his eyes and his face when he won Paris or when he set the American record or, you know, won a U.S. title or beat like Legat in the rivalry. And that was a thing that you could not take away. If you took that away from him, he was not as effective. Oh, and I right. think too, we just, we need to pay homage to that reality. And, one key consideration when you do workouts or as you integrate tough sessions, quote unquote, or tough races into your um, uh, preparation program is to consider the emotional tax because there is an emotional tax. And we know, too, that that distress takes some time to you know refuel and takes some time to that battery takes time to recharge. And sometimes it's, you know, a couple days and sometimes a couple weeks. Yeah, you know it's funny you brought up Alan because like the year, the year I trained with him, that's probably the biggest thing that I noticed is like he would drain that emotional battery in practice a lot, like during the championship season, and a lot of times I think that was his his big downfall because um, you know the way I like to conceptualize it or tell my athletes is there's only so many times we can go and see God, right? Huh. There's all, only so many times we can dip into that well. And whether it's in practice or race or something else, like it takes a while to come back out of it. And it, you know, once you've kind of drained it for a season, it takes like full refresh rejuvenation to do it. And like we actually try and quantify it a bit just by subjectiveness, like in addition to, you know, how they rate how physically demanding a workout is like we just have it essentially how emotionally demanding was this? Like how... Mm -hmm focused how much did you have to dig to get things done because you know it's funny and looking at some of that rough data is sometimes there's some demanding emotional workouts that aren't that hard physically because they have other things going on in their life 
And if I didn't take that into consideration, then like, you know, I could be draining that kid's battery without, um, you know, without even knowing it. Yeah, right. context is king, without a doubt. But Mike, there was a, a moment in an interview I saw after NCAs where you talked about emotional control and you yeah. know that your guys were just your men were very much in emotional control so maybe you know let's go a little bit deeper on this thread real quick how did you help infuse them with that confidence that allowed them to be emotionally control in the wild crucible that is the NCAA cross-country championships which we were talking about before offline there's only one race like that the whole year and it's the, it's the race it's very difficult to prepare for that beast um, it, with any kind of replication of racing or practice. So, you know, and your, your men did that too very well and hats off, but I'm curious what that process looked like to get them to that point. Yeah. I, I think that's just from, you know, I, those are things I learned from probably doing it the wrong way myself as an athlete. And then, uh, just, um, watching the mistakes of other people in that, I think you got to really learn that event. And like you said, there's, there's nothing like it. And I wish it was a sport where the rah, rah, you know, you know, the crazy speeches and, the you know, doing this for your brothers and all this stuff. I, I wish that, I think that almost would be cooler if that like really, there was a direct parallel to that. I just think, um, really well intentioned that puts people that really, uh, sends people into the wrong place. And so, Instead of wasting my time on, well, I, I wish I could, you know, give some, you know, d deliver, you know, have them in this kind of like out of body experience like uh, thing. I, I, instead of wasting my time on that, I just really try to master what the event is and how to do it correctly. And it sounds probably if you listen to the way I talk to them, it really sounds like I'm downplaying it. Like, hmm. Um, if you're a senior and this is your last college cross country race and you got a chance, your team has a chance to win it, and your coach isn't, is your coach is telling you, "Hey man, just try to be good. Don't even try to be great." It doesn't sound very exciting. It doesn't right. sound very, you know. But um, but again, it's really trying to master what this event is. And so, again, like you know, I thought we had an opportunity with BYU when, when uh, all the stuff I would read and. They were just, it was all this stuff about winning, and it's like, uh, we're not going to do that. And uh, <laughs> we we just, you know, it's the same way, like, you know, you don't, you know, you, you can dream the wrong dream. You can, you can have this, paint this picture of turning the corner with 800 meters to go, and the, the sun is shining, and your girlfriend is at the finish line, and you sprint away, and you win it for your team. Okay, well, three minutes into the NCAA cross-country meet, it's not going to be like that. What, <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. Right? And, no, and, life's messy. Life's very messy. Right, and so, and, and, and so instead, we spend with our guys, it's like, hey, you're going to be in 55th place, and you got 2K to go, and it hurts. Let's dream that dream, right? Let's make that picture. That's hey, you're you know we're gonna be out in fourteen thirty for five k. Um, you're gonna be buried back there. You have no idea what's going on, going on. You're gonna be you know what are you gonna do now? And we spend our time talking about that. And I think that's what I mean when I say emotional control. It's it's uh, really painted the night before. I don't give any crazy speeches. Uh, you know. I, we gather them up ahead of time. I said, hey, you know, you're prepared. You, you trust the work. You, you're ready to do what we're asking you to do. And 
we say, uh, you know, three, two, one, Jacks, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so easy nowadays to get caught up in the hype. There's so much more hype available at one's fingertips than ever before. Well, right. Well, and it's also, I think, a little bit over coaching, right? Like. Right. Sometimes as a coach, you know, I remember making this mistake when I was younger. It's like you have this feel, this need to do something. And something that something is like, oh, it's the night before. Like, I got to get these guys in the right moment and get them jacked up and excited and all that stuff. And you go on this long speech and rah-rah stuff or the scene before a race, right? Sometimes you give that pre-race huddle uh, speech just because you feel like oh i have to do something rather than just as an athlete would say hey i have the confidence i'm prepared as a coach sometimes you need to be i have the confidence i'm prepared so mm-hmm. uh, on that note you know we talked a little on the night before what is what's that like hour leading up to race start look like for you guys or what did it look like <clears throat> i looked over and tyler day was laying on the ground in the tent and he uh he just had his eyes closed. He was just playing air guitar. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, they, um, I'll, I'll always remember that. I, uh, <clears throat> I'm careful to stay out of their way. Um, in the hour before, I, uh, I give my staff really clear directions as to basically not talk to them. Um, and, uh, again, it's, it's, it's overcoaching. It's getting out of the way. If, if we're at the NCAA Cross Country Championships and I got to psych you up, we, we, are, we got big, much bigger problems. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's like it's not – I got to bring you down. And, I, you know, and so um, we – yeah, we, we st- I, I get a moment with each of them and I pull them aside, each of them, and I sort of just survey, kind of read their energy and kind of feel – where they all are. And I always say, you know, in the hour before this one, I asked each of them the same question. I said, what, tell me what you want to do and basically make them recite back to me what they planned on doing. And, uh, so I, you know, I pulled Tyler day out there and said, well, tell me what you're going to do. And he said, gas. I said, okay. And, uh, you know, get Peter Lemong out there. Peter Lamont finished eighth place. Uh, he was like 40-something at Wisconsin. Uh, he just said, uh, you know, I'm going to go get position. We talked a lot about what the positioning in Louisville. We knew from researching the 2012 and 2015 race that if we were winning at 2K, I would call it a, I would call it a 60-40 chance we were going to win. If we were winning at 4K, 50-50, and if, if, if we're winning at halfway, I'd say it's 70-30 we're going to win. And so we told them that, you know, hey, we, positioning early on is really important. So they recited back where they needed to be position-wise. We think position is what you do in the first 400. Positioning on that Louisville course with how it narrows out is what you're doing the whole first 10 minutes of the race. And so they recite back to me sort of early on what they're going to do. Pete Lamont told me his positioning sounded great. Um, and then, uh, and then we leave them alone, and uh, we give them that moment to concentrate and be with each other. And uh, we, the coaching is done way, way, way before the meet. So yes, without, I mean, that's ex- resonates a lot with me because we are in, you know, people might call it preseason comp- competition preparation, whatever for a lot of the track middle distance distance athletes for indoors now right we're here in november this is when i am coaching the most this is when i'm just coaching 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 a lot of psychology a lot of build up i mean it's extensive and exhaustive 
And if we do, I always remind the athlete too, if I do my job correctly, the morning of the race, I'm having an espresso and just doing that, you know, one, two quick, simple words and you're ready to go. Because if you have to get to the race and continue to coach with everything you got before the athlete starts online, you know you're rushing. You know that it's sloppy work and you know that you haven't done enough in the buildup to get them into the space they want. So appreciate you affirming that. I mean, it's sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget. Honestly, like that's one of the best things that I've learned about coaching collegiately and then having post-collegiate athletes go wander off throughout the year is like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've not talked to an athlete before a race, you know, before right. big races, even before marathons. Cause like, you know, you know, I'm in Houston, someone's running New York and, you know, I'm not even going to call them before sometimes besides maybe, Hey, good luck because everything's done at that point and you don't need that. You shouldn't need that hand holding to the line. And if you do, then you messed up somewhere on the preparation side. Yep. Yeah, I, I completely, it's over, it's over coaching. And, and I, I think well intentioned, but it's like this feeling of, it's really an expression of your nerves and your anxiety as a coach, not necessarily that there's actually tangibly something to do. Right. And I think too, we, uh, you know, I want to get into that Barack Obama quote you share with your team where you have to make this distinguish, uh, distinction between you and the work because it's the work that we've showed up to do it's not a measure of you as a human being and your validity on this planet earth it's a measure of your preparation for the work so um you know if you will mike take me take us through how that quote came into your consciousness and then how you applied it and presented it to your team before uh the nsa championships yeah i'll uh i'll actually just a yeah minor minor correction that was i i, I didn't share it with the team i just shared it with my staff oh, okay. um okay yeah, yeah, but I had, uh, I had, um, yeah, but I think you know it, it's it's still really important um, that it's coaches and and this is I think uh, you know in, in your podcast when you uh, when you you have a lot of listeners who are coaches and and they're they're working with kids and um, and athletes and so I I would share it I shared it with my my staff uh, over coffee the morning of the race and I. Uh, would say it to I, I, to any listeners that are coaches uh, right now that um, the, the quote basically says that if you make it about you, you you're going to get stuck and you're going to get frustrated. Um, and if you make it about the work, then you'll always see your path. And uh, I I was saying that because I've been talking a lot to uh, my assistant coaches throughout the year of releasing ourselves from outcomes, releasing ourselves from having to win and having to repeat. And it sounds like, oh, you're taking the pressure off yourself. And not that at all. It's we, we certainly want to win. But I way, way before I got to the national meet had to let go of winning and way, way before. And um, and I think that's the part that really aligns with you. Well, if it's about me, then I have to like create some resume as a coach. And that's not why I'm doing this. I don't think that's why you two are doing this. We're in this for the work. And if we just make sure that we're focused on the work, we can get second or third or, or 29th at the national meet. I feel really good about what our work is doing as far as uh, how it's moving these people in their lives at their young ages. And um, that's what we, we got to stay focused on. 
So I, I love that. There's a really good book written by Matthew Crawford called Shopcraft is Soulcraft, where he talks about the value of work um, in that same line of thinking. Um, so good read if listeners want to jump into that. But uh, so from an athlete standpoint, how do you how do you get that that message across to the athletes? Right. Because especially in modern day and in, in today's society, and I feel old saying that, but like so much of our success is devi- defined by these external outcomes, whether it's like likes on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or times and PRs or wins and all that stuff. And we're almost like inundated with the outcome is all that, that matters. How do you combat that and get them to have that different mindset? Yeah, you couldn't have said that better. Um, that's definitely the virus that we're fighting against. And um, I think a lot of it is, is how, how you're speaking to them, what you're rewarding, what you're praising um, and, and sometimes it's like, it's just like pu- putting in a bookmark. It's just like, like putting in like a little, like a tab saying like, come back and, and come back to this and you'll make sense of it later. If I can't get them to understand it right now, uh, it's at least giving them the, the folding the page over where they can refer to it later. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's reminding them that, None of these outcomes are that bizarre. None of them are that, you know, it, it, you know, that if it's the outcome they're seeking, you seek the outcome through the process and really making note, really clarifying, making sure that no one can just gloss over the process. You know, we, we, we had 10 guys uh, travel out there. Eight of the 10 stayed at altitude all summer long and ran a million miles a week up at 9,000 feet. And, you know, a couple months later, they're on the bus. It's just so reminding them, hey, you know, no one's just lucky and talented. And, you know, what, what were you doing on August 1st? And, you know, what were you doing? And so really trying to make note to them of showing them uncovering those little pieces of the process, I think. Hmm. Yeah, it's difficult in this day and age to think that the shiny things are – uh, you know, game changers, and they're not. I remind people: a tweet never changed the world. No. You know, yeah. an Instagram post never changed the world. That's not where the work lies. It's the newest, latest form of distraction. They were saying the same thing about TV when it first showed up. Same thing about radio. Same thing about magazine ads, right? And I think that you know, investment in craft, that investment of just coming to you know practice every day, getting yeah. a little bit better every day, drip by drip. It's like coffee in the morning. You, that's how it's made, drip by drip by drip. And then oh. soon enough, you have this full, delicious cup of coffee that fuels you and gets you going and on with your day. Same deal here, right? So my curiosity, though, Mike, is now you guys had a very dominant season. Lots of winning took place from a result outcome at invitationals, conference, regionals, and now nationals back-to-back. How do you defend moving forward in what, with what Pat Riley calls the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers and Miami Heat, the disease of more? And I'll unpack that real quick. In the book Showtime, I talked about the Lakers in the mid-'80s when Riley was the coach with Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They had a lot of success, and then you get this disease of more where people start focusing on more of the wrong things, so more playing time, more endorsements, more kudos and you know in distance running world it's more miles more success more you know all americans more 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 
you know, that's a very real peril that a lot of champions face down the road, and not everyone meets it uh, with success. In fact, many get derailed by it. So, you know, what are some thoughts or strategies that you have in place to now keep these guys centered, level-headed, but also prepared on the next tasks so that you don't have this um, crater that develops because you now have these two big trophies hanging or, you know, placed in the mantle or the trophy case as you walk into practice every day. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. It's, I think this is, this is a real test of coaching right now. And, um, because you, you see how this happens, right? It's like the, the, the attributes that got someone to where they are are the first ones to be lost when you get there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. you know, you got these like hung, hungry, scrappy teams that bond together around a goal and then you get there and, and the, the, the real, I think challenge is how do you keep those really special virtues that, uh, had you arrived there? There's Alan Watts, a uh, uh, Zen writer talks a lot about like the plague of self-improvement and how mm-hmm. framing, Framing self-improvement, this whole idea that in our modern culture that we always have to be, always have to be get better. We're obsessed with, like we, we have to all, we always are framing ourselves in a state of problem that must be improved, and uh, how it prevents us from uh, actually being where we are uh, right here, and how it divides us from the self that must be improved to the one uh, seeking the improvement, and how it divides the self and. I think it's a really interesting concept. It's uh, uh, it's possible to just say that uh, to make note of how we got to where we are and uh, make sure that we really hold true to those principles. It's not glamorous, uh, you know. Uh, Path told me, "Chop wood, carry water." <laughs> yeah, famous uh, end quote, right? You know, before, it's I mean, like, yeah. Before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment. Chop wood, carry water. Chop wood, carry water, and it's you know. So, um, how do we, how do we go back to, especially in this sport that requires such monotony? Like, you know, you. I always laugh when they're you know they're coming up with some new documentary about falling around some new professional runner, and it's like, I like talk about like, do you want me to fall asleep? Do you know what these people like? <laughs> no, yeah. like the life these people, you know, is like, okay, I ran, I took a nap, I woke up and ran. Uh, and you know, one time this year I stayed up past 10 PM. And I mean, and so, you know, especially in a sport where, where there's such monotony, um, we have to return to that monotony. We got to return to, uh, Buffalo Park and Waterline Road, and as quickly as we can forget about being the national champions, you know, the better. Right. Yeah, it's always difficult, too, because now the guy who was fifth, who was a junior, now wants to be the man because, you know, he feels like he had a, uh, you know, sometimes a key hand in, in the delivery of that championship. And so, too, it's like you have a bunch of young men who are growing and developing and getting a sense of self in the world. And there is ego involved because that's just what you have to do to help create a clear sense of self. You know, now in the context of track, how do you create a bridge to leverage, okay, tracks a little bit more individualized, a little bit more focused, but then tie it back to, because I know you plan far in advance, next fall. 
so that the guys can still maintain that sense of cohesion and support, but also to find their time to shine so that then they can come back into the fold and, you know, be a band of brothers again that are aligned on this journey in 2018. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think track, track is track cross country cycle is really important. What makes great cross country runner is, you know, coming off great track season and, and, I'd be surprised to see someone that really is going to put it together on the track that um, in the long term that, you know, couldn't make at least some personal progress in, in cross country. And I, um, so I think it's perfect that we're kind of coming off this cross country season because the next thing to go to is like you said, sort of some of that more individual, what's next for this person? What are, what are the next needs? Do we need to, you know, some of these guys, we need to just, we need to get them faster. We need to lower some volume a little bit and, um, you know, and so, some of them have to just build uh, tactical awareness. We need to just get them into races and uh, work themselves out of problems. And, um, you know, some of them need to just invest, uh, you know, from, a, you know, taking risks and some of these longer things. So really looking at what, what's next on their hierarchy and needs and their to-do lists and uh, being able to give them those, those opportunities without staying too far from the mission of um, the special things we can do together as a group. So let's unpack that a little bit in terms of details. Like, what what's it look right right now? What's the, what's the break look like when you guys kind of regroup and start that build for for track as as a team and that that kind of stuff? Yeah. The uh, well, again, just we have to give them a big emotional reset. At the mm-hmm. same time, we don't want them to completely stop running. Uh, I think we you know we keep the body in a certain physical rhythm. We need them to get rested, but we don't want the body to close off, and so we have to keep things moving. Um, we give them some days off, but we ask them to sort of, you know, keep on short, uh, slow runs uh, for a couple weeks here. So we'll give them two weeks of running, four to five days a week of uh, anywhere from thirty to sixty minutes, maybe one longer run, and making sure that we're keeping the hip joint and the ankle joint open throughout that whole time. Uh, I've had a bunch of people get hurt coming off of breaks, right? Yeah, Which, like, exactly. Like doesn't make any, you, you know, it didn't take me long. It took me like the second year of that to be like, all right, wait a second. Something isn't right here. But I think, again, the body closes up and now you got an ankle that's not moving and you got a hip that's not moving. Then you go, all right, well, now you're coming off a break. Now let's go train hard again and mm-hmm. the body's not moving correctly. And so – uh is that accomplished for you just through daily running, or are you doing like maybe some light plyometrics on a like a box jump seat triple extension, or how does yeah, that look? Let's. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, again, I got to be careful what I'm asking them to do. That looks like practice, right? And so, if I give them uh, anything too complicated, I feel like it, it's like a, it just it's it's, a, it's like a, it's a it's an ask, and so. We've got a uh, we've got a great uh, really basic active isolated stretching routine that takes ten minutes uh, that covers all the the basic movements that I want to stay open in the body. We ask them to keep on that. We have some barefoot walks uh, that uh, we ask them to keep too. Uh, we'll we'll turn over just a little bit with some some strides, um, but we don't want them doing anything. It, it's like we don't want them doing anything that we're that feels like well I'm being I'm the only reason I'm doing this is I'm being asked to do it. We got to save that ammunition, so uh, we don't have them do anything too complicated. But we want a good healthy break, um, and then even when they get back, we'll we'll uh, so after about two weeks, we'll have them meet, but we won't work them out. And 
So that gives you another week, a third week. Um, and I mean, I, I, I just think you can't ask the NCAA system is a, is a, you gotta be really, really careful because there's an opportunity for you to be, to go, you know, um, to, to really hit it. I don't know. I'd say eight out of 12 months a year, you know, there's, Hey, you can be, you know, like when I was at Georgetown, it would be like, you got to get them qualified for indoors. So that's in January or February. And then you got to run indoors. Well, that's in March, the indoor NCAAs. Then you got Penn Relays in April. And then you got to get them qualified. You got regionals in May, nationals in June. You know, shoot, you can't have them going all year round like that. And so we're going to have to pass up on, on some things. And that's okay. We, uh, we're going to take a good crack at the fall. And uh, we'll have them really ready for outdoor track. We'll give them one good shot indoors at something maybe, but we're not going to chase anything. And and I just got to be okay with leaving some stuff on the on the table. And uh, they, what's hard for them is when they're really fired up and they're fit and they're excited. Like Matt Baxter just took Justin Knight to the line. He wants to go run, you know, thirteen twenty something somewhere in the world. That's like so. It's really uh, it's not that cool as the coach. You don't you don't feel that that. Uh, <laughs> You know, you don't feel that awesome being like, "Hey, dude, just go for a forty-minute run uh, tomorrow." You know what I mean? But, right. um, but again, it's you know, I, I you you have that trust, and hopefully, they're rolling in June again. Yeah, you talked about before NCAs. You guys didn't come down and do a, a normal quote-unquote taper, or I should say, not normal, but a traditional taper. I myself am not a fan of the traditional taper, which is scrap. Yeah all the volume in the world and then start running really fast for two to three weeks out to get people quote unquote freshened up. I mean, Lydiard didn't really, um, you know, that's I think where it came from was this idea of Lydiard being like freshening up, but that taper was a taper from a hundred mile weeks to like 80 mile weeks. So it's not really the application that people are um, interpreting it to be in this day and age. So, yeah. you know, um, talk us a little bit through that. Cause I know my reasons for shying away from that, that reality but uh, i would love well, to hear I your think thoughts. It, uh, yeah i think i think it really parallels uh a lot of the ways i coach it's just the, the real the, the the test i give myself is am i doing this because i think this is like just what you do and i or i did this as an athlete or something or is this do i really actually have uh reasons that i have dad do i have is the is the the human being in front of me telling me this is you know what to do and so the taper to us, to me, it's very, it's, I don't know how else to say it. It's like very like nineties, like, uh, it's just old thinking. It's a, this old, like, we're going to pull you back to, you know, 40 miles a week thing. Like I, I wish that worked. I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think we, I think we have a lot of people. I would love to survey all 300 kids on that starting line and say, how many of you feel out of your minds, the best you felt all season right here today? I bet like 20 of them do. And the other 280 said, I felt better in September or I felt the same as I do in October. Or I, So just don't give, me, don't give me all this stuff about like we've got this thing mastered. I, I don't believe that for a second. Uh, so 48 hours before they ran that race, they, ran 10, they did a 10-mile run. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, Josh McDougall, remember, in the early 2000s, the day before NCAAs, he won individually at Terre Haute. He ran a 10-mile run on the course. Yeah, yeah. So we raced Saturday. Thursday morning, they did a 10-mile run. Uh, Friday. It's normal they, for them, right? Like a 10-mile run is a normal yeah. thing to do, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they don't think it's a uh, – they don't 
Exactly right. I mean, so that, it's that's, not a new stimulus. That's you know, kind of my thing with the taper. It's like if you've been running and training at this stimulus threshold for the duration of you know these many weeks leading up to this championship meet, if you then all of a sudden right you know pull off all this stimulus that you've been exposing to, and that's their homeostasis. Well, yeah. actually, it's a new stimulus now because it's lack of stimulus that they've gotten used to. Right. Right. And right. so all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, why is everyone flat and lethargic <laughs> like we are in the middle of the off-season when we're, when we're now layering new stimuli on? Yeah. So to me, it's just – for some reason, like you said, it's well-intended thought, but the execution of it is very sloppy. Well, it's actually junk. Well, it's, it's just like what we talked about about going completely off for a break period, right? It's like whenever you kind of pull down the reins too much, it just, you know, the body goes haywire because the body adapts to whatever it's given. It's like, John, you just said homeostasis. It's like whatever set point you're at, like that's where you're at. And if you deviate from that, it's a new stimulus, like you said. So, you know, the only time I've ever seen a lot of success with a traditional quote unquote taper is if someone is fried going into it. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they need some sort of like drastic change to to like bump them out of this like bad state they're in. And if that's the case, then okay, this might work. It's sure. like your sure. last minute, you know, tool you pull out of the tool bag because you screwed things up. But Yeah, it's a Hail Mary. That's yeah, really it, what it, it is. It, and it's only exactly. if it gives them the emotional space more than anything. Well yeah. and, and, and you know, a lot of times you look at this stuff and I think it's a great, you know, example of where we've kind of gone wrong is like the idea assumption is that like, hey, if we take this this stress off them, then they're going to feel fresh. But that's not how the body adapts. We've established right. that. And the second well, part it's of a, it, it's a misappropriation yeah. of this, you know, periodization trend where now we're going to get this super mega, oh my gosh, the most incredible compensation ever. And it's like, Definitely not. <laughs> it doesn't work like yeah. that. And I, I think that's where, again, you know, to hate on my people, science has really screwed us over because, like, all the research studies are, are on, like, these big tapers. But they're on, you know, moderately trained individuals who mm-hmm. don't do that much, right? And when you don't do that much, you're not adapted to something. And, like, I, I, I like to tell... You know, people from team sports a lot of uh, times is like that 10 mile run you did, you guys did Thursday, like 10 miles easy for them. That's like going for a, you know, a hour long walk for me. Right. Yeah. If, if you're in shape, it's nothing. Right. right. Well, actually, well, if it's yeah. within what you do consistently on a consistent basis for months and months and months right. and months. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, um, <clears throat> we, we, so we, we do this 10 mile run and, Baxter, they, they, the guys come back and uh, they, they ran almost 11, actually. They were, you know, 10.8 miles. And, and I'm like, oh, man, it, you know, we're, they, they, got, they just turned around at the wrong time. Was, you know, we're in a new place. And Baxter, I'm just kind of like wondering what they're going to say about kind of going a little bit long. And Baxter just said, uh, oh, man, it felt good just to, to get a nice longer run in. And that to me shows me how normal it is and how it's you're feeding them what's expected. So instead of us thinking – 10 mile run, we just think like, no, 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 we're keeping everything normal. Everything is right. normal. Everything is steady. Um, I will say one other thing on the, on the, on the taper is, um, we, we are, we're really careful in, um, 
the neuromuscular and what, how much we're turning over. So we know that we, we're going to ask them to Steve, I, I credit you that, that bit on muscle tension you have in your book, um, was a real, really formative for me. Um, and in my thinking of this stuff of just, um, how we, you know, so that 10 mile run is part of it. We're going to, we're going to have them do some drills, some dynamic strides, things like that day of day before the race. And then we're really careful, uh, of what we're asking them to do in the five, six days prior to that from a neuromuscular standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I just think that a lot of times we, we think we're getting closer to the race. Uh, we want to, we want to, again, this, this diamond shaped thing of sharpening. And so we start giving them all this fast crap. Um, we would, we did a lot of short treadmill Hills this year. So, uh, 10 to 15 seconds. Uh, we did these weekly since August, 15 seconds at 15 degrees. And mm -hmm. so they're actually not turning over that fast and it's on an incline. Um, right. uh, but that was a way to just touch that, uh, kind of firing force from the, you know, from the glute there without asking them to really, uh, rip it on the track or rip it with some short, fast stuff. So we could keep things engaged without this, you know, you know, ask them to go too fast, which I think potentially is what leaves you with that kind of dead leg feeling. Well, and the tissues and the, the brain and the, you know, coordination is prepared. And that's the thing you said months and months and months. You've been doing this for a long time. Right. So doing in some strides, doing that, the tissues and the organism is prepared to handle and incur the stress and not interpret the stress as something intense and new and different. It's yep. part of its routine. It's part of, again, it meets um, you know, a threshold of homeostasis versus if you take it off, okay, that now is a new stimuli or if you vastly accelerate it or do more volume of it. And yeah. I think crap speed is a good word because crap speed to me to define it very um, precisely is brand new speed work without any tissues prepared to do it. And that's what happens in a typical taper. You know, people I'm working with, milers, it's November. We're doing flying 30s. We're doing flying 60s now in November. And yeah. they're sprinting year-round, year-round. Like, you know, to talk about real quick, an athlete, Daniel Herrera, who's the national record holder for the one mile in Mexico now. This guy was a 402 miler coming out of UCLA. Never sprinted. Oh, Jamar, I can't sprint. You know, I, I pull my caps. I go, well, Dan, I, I think you can sprint, but you just haven't been prepared to sprint. So it took about a good six months to prepare him to be able to consistently sprint. And he was doing acceleration ladders on the track in December of last year. He didn't open up his outdoor season. He didn't open up racing until April 1st. But then this guy ran for the first time under four. He ran under four three times in three different months on the track. Yeah. He ran started 29 races. You paced a couple, but finished out of the ones he wasn't pacing, 24 races. His calendar of racing was April 1st to October 1st. No right. injuries, none of this. What were we doing? We were sprinting. I mean, his yeah. last workout was four times 250, you know, at max max speed. <laughs> I mean, max, max effort. And it was fine, and it was good. And he did this before his final race about five, six days. Why? We've been doing that for, you know, almost a year. Right. So. I think sometimes, again, there's, we shy away from as distance coaches speed because we apply it or we subject the stimulus at the wrong time of year. And then the tissues aren't prepared. 
the you know central nervous system isn't ready to coordinate it at that, those velocities, and it's this huge tax. And I know, for me, my general rule of thumb is any type of intense CNS work, where it's a heavy lift or speed work, I give a minimum 72 hours for that system to reboot because it's delicate. It's really delicate. And sometimes, again, we think, oh, we'll get them real sharp on Tuesday and the race is on Saturday and they're flat. Right. You know, right. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it all comes down to that experience thing a little bit, knowing your athletes and knowing what makes them flat or not. You know, we talk a lot about this science stuff. We talk about, about, you know, these different ideas, but it really kind of comes down to that. Like, do they feel flat or not? And if they feel flat, then like what you did going into those, you know, that weekdays leading into it wasn't the right thing to do. And I think yeah. as, as coaches, like a lot of times, like that's where that data in the season comes from is like, you know, a lot of times we keep track of that stuff on, um, you know, hey, how do you feel? Did you feel flat out there? Okay, I did. Like whatever I did going into this race. I need to adjust that come championship season or try this different thing next time if I want them to feel good. Right. Love it. Love it, guys. Well, I think to wrap up, Mike, just I got one final question. Maybe Steve has one as the culminating one. But, you know, you talked a lot about emotional control, confidence, having a plan, being very thorough in your preparation and analysis of this season. What I'm curious is for you to maybe talk about the doubt that might have come up because, you know, as much as we like to think it's all a Cinderella story and you had this perfect plan and everything went to perfection. Mm -hmm. I know there were some rocky roads and adversities. And the thing about life is we can't control what adversities we're subject to, but we can control how we respond to those adversities. So for you as a coach, walk us through your moments of doubt, this season and how you coped and who you surround yourself with as your support network to help you with those shadow moments where you thought all was lost and everything was down the tubes. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking that because again, it's, it's so easy after something goes well to be sitting around talking about how we planned all this out and this and that. And, you know, it's, um, I was telling our guys on the, um, on the way home from nationals, hey, look, you know, a, a meet like this, when it goes well, uh, the, a lot of times we don't head back and then say, what could, what did I do well? What could I do better? We don't that, we don't have that kind of reflection. It's usually after something that doesn't go well, we really go back to the drawing board and really rethink things. And I challenged them, said, hey, if this went well for you, and it certainly went well for our team, but if it went well for you individually, I still challenge you to reflect on you know how we got here and and um so i do the same thing as, as a coach when i when i go back to it um yeah you know I, I will start with saying this a big a big breakthrough for me or something that was different for me this time than other times is um i i wrote uh the training maybe uh june or june or july uh of what we would do until november and um i just i I trusted it and I didn't every time something was up, rethink it. And that's a really fine line of being fluid and adaptable. Um, it's not to say that you're not open to change, but I will say that I, I trusted it and I, I didn't um, completely reinvent the wheel every time I got skittish about something. And, and I, 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 that was definitely different for me as I, I was really committed to what I had drawn up. Um, but I, I will say that, uh, there were some 
there, there were a couple moments and I'll, I'll tell you about them. Um, I was still mastering, you know, I was coming from, coming from DC, coming from Georgetown. We had, uh, you know, Reagan airport is 10 minutes from campus. Well, Phoenix airport Flagstaff is two, two and a half hours from campus. And so I was, I think not taking into account what the travel was potentially doing to these guys. So we go to Louisville into September and, uh, we come back and I, you know, typically for me is, Hey, if we race, the thing we do on the next Tuesday or the next workout is we'll do something aerobic. So not a big muscular stress coming off a race. So we, uh, we, we race on Saturday, get, get in at midnight after, you know, traveling all day. We race, travel all day Saturday, get them in at midnight. So they wake up Sunday, they, they feel like hell and they go for a jog and Mondays we got class, we get a long practice. Tuesday, um, I go to give him something long aerobic and I mean, we were like, you know, a hundred percent, like everyone was just off. Either they couldn't do it or our good, you know, the, our guys that are most seasoned veterans, they could do it. It just cost them way, way too much for what you wanted it to. It's like one of these things like on a scale of one to 10, there should be like a four and it was like an eight. And, um, and I'm just like, what is going, you know, and I, that, that really spooked me in, but it, but it was, I, I, it was the travel. It was just like, okay, we're not, this isn't DC where we, you know, we, they race in their home in two hours. It was like, I mean, they, the travel just crushed them. So that was a change I made throughout the season is I, 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 I canceled, you know, I want to say coming off the conference meet, I, I canceled a bunch of training, um, and it kind of freaked out the guys. A bunch of guys were like, are you sure about this? And I was like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing stuff just to do it. Um, so sometimes there were just like, there were things that I think there were just me being new to NAU and new to Flagstaff that, um, I just was, I was trying to learn there. Um, we had a guy miss a couple weeks of, of training in the middle of the season. Jordy B. Mish, he finished 40th for us. He was our, he was our fifth man, uh, and he missed a couple weeks in the season. He right after Wisconsin, he had a calf injury, um, and yeah, I mean he, you know, I mean he went like ten days zero running in there, and you know at that point you're you're looking at who, you know, um, you know who we got Corey coming on. Pete is coming off of finishing forty something in Wisconsin. Luis is a freshman. It's like. Uh, you know, it changes the game not having Jordy. Jordy's run three forty one, um, thirteen fifty. So it's just uh, that was a, that was a little alarming. Um, and also, I knew that our guys were putting in a lot of work. They had put in a lot of work this summer. We had outside of Jordy, we really didn't have injuries, so we didn't have any other interruptions. And I think uh, if you're asking about doubt, it's like, all right, we were pretty good in September. I think you know, um, I think we can hold it, but. Certainly you see a lot of people that, you know, um, that's still November is a long way to go. So, um, there were some times in there where I was like, man, we, I wish we were maybe coming on a little bit later from what I'm seeing in training. You know, um, I wish maybe that was stuff I was seeing in September. I was seeing more in October, but, um, again, I think that just goes back to being really careful with what you're asking them, uh, kind of emotionally. That's fantastic. I think uh, I think we'll end it right there because I think that's an important message to have because as both of you guys mentioned is a lot of times after wins we kind of gloss over and forget about the struggles or the doubts and all those things that, that come up and 
you know, as a coach, I think it's really refreshing to hear some of those things because it's very tempting when you're going through those to be like, ah, crap, like we're not going to hit our goal because everything didn't go perfectly. But, um, you know, making your way through some of that reality of uh, winning NCAAs versus the fairy tale of it is uh, hopefully a good message to send. Yeah. And Mike, I just want to say thank you and congrats. Like when I looked at the results and I just, a big smile broke over my face to see a friend and a colleague, uh, very well deserved staying on your own two feet, you know, doing something that's difficult to do, get the baton and torch passed from you from a great coach in Eric Hines and a great program and maintain that engine and the fuel to keep it going and not just repeat, but repeat in a very dominant fashion. And I mean, all hats off to Portland and BYU and all the other NCAA schools out there, Syracuse, they're good schools. I mean, these are great coaches and, you know, just couldn't think of a more person and program deserving. So again, congrats and thanks again for coming on here. Not once, but twice, just huh. like the back-to-back titles. Thanks, John. And, and thanks, Steve. I, I want to say um, thanks to you guys. I, I, I think, uh, I think what we have as far as our collaboration on things, uh, you know, that, Hey, I, I was, I was, uh, I'd want to hash out ideas with you guys, uh, you know, be- before, before we won this thing and, and long after. Uh, and I, I just think um, that collaboration that we have and that support is what makes coaching really special. And we're going to, we're going to keep doing that throughout uh, each of our successes. So thanks for being my colleagues in it. It's a privilege. Yeah. Thanks Mike. <laughs>